all these mistakes that I did, you know, like I started to dwell on my past mistakes again and so forth. There was just this moment where I was just like, look, you have a choice now. You are aware of it now and you're either going to move on or you're going to keep doing what destroys you. Hey, I'm Andrew Kaplan. Welcome to the Delivering Value podcast, where I chat with people who lead cross-functional growth teams, not about their favorite tactics, strategies, or accomplishments. You can find plenty of that on other shows. This show is about the personal challenges, career adversity, and self-doubt that come from working with growth roles at early stage SaaS companies. It's a hard job, and this show normalizes that everybody makes mistakes and encounters adversity along the way. My guest today is Leah Theron. Leah is a leading growth advisor for B2B companies. She's the former head of product and growth at Jua. She led the core product team at Small PDF, which had over 50 million monthly active users. She's a program creator at Maven, an executive coach, and an advisor to company leadership around PLG. I was excited to have Leah on the show because from the outside looking in, she seems incredibly confident, and she seems to have playbooks and answers and tactics seemingly for every situation. So I was excited to have her on and to hear about some of the speed bumps, mistakes, and adversity that she's encountered along the way. She was incredibly vulnerable in our conversation. She shared the brutal performance feedback that shaped basically the rest of her career. She shared what she learned after the failing of a startup that she co-founded with her dad and then had the sunset four years later. And she talked about the importance of tools, specifically flight simulation in her personal life, as a way to balance and separate her work success or failure from her personal self-worth and identity and happiness. We covered a ton of ground in our conversation. It was incredibly relatable. Let's just go ahead and jump right in. So where I figured we could start is I have followed you from a distance. And so I know the bullet points of your story, but I'm curious to hear in your own words, what led you into PLG? I always find this a very difficult question because there's two parts to it. And I have a relatively unconventional view on what it actually means. What does product growth mean? Is it about growth? Is it more about the product? What is it about? And I don't think that you can separate these two. You know, this classical growth meme, right? Where people just mistake marketing for growth. And then the PLG advisors are coming around the corner and then they say like, no, 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 it's actually different. Or dealing with all three functions in the company and so forth. I actually think the two are completely inseparable from product. So product and growth are much more like each other than marketing and classical growth functions as we see them right now in SaaS. So depending on how you look at this, I got into product about 12 years ago when I was really pissed off about discovering problems as a UX researcher and I couldn't change any of them. I find that's actually a really common story for what it's worth. There's a marketing path into growth and then there's a UX path into growth. So that's where yours originates. That is exactly what it is. You either come in from marketing or you come in from UX and then you become really good at products. And this is always what I did. So I started to become an innovation PM is what I would call it, where you usually hire me to do the big bets, right? Like the risky stuff, the things that have absolutely no data at the start and then they need to have some data at the end and hopefully also a good return. The frustrating bits about creating a product is that, especially if you go for the moonshots, that it's difficult to get some predictability in it. And at the same time, when you grow something, you want to have predictability in it, right? So like we want to optimize something that exists. And I always kind of existed on this twilight zone between creating something that you can scale and that you can optimize in the future, but still kind of start 
at ground zero, like from nothing. So growing something not only from zero to one, but also then scaling it afterwards. And I felt always that this is kind of my thing, but I never had a name for it. So I did not come around the term product growth until I actually read it first, I think from something about OpenView, all the typical heads on LinkedIn talking about it. But uh, yeah, depending on how you look at it, I did it already way before that. We just had different names for it, I guess. And that's similar to my background, I guess, where I never knew what to call it either. I used to call it e-commerce for SaaS. That was like the closest thing I could use to describe it to my family in a way that they would get. And then finally, I feel like OpenView evangelized the term. And then all of a sudden, all of us breathed a sigh of relief, like, fuck, that's what I do. Yes, yes. Okay, it's that thing. And you can point at this thing. So once you heard about what it was, it had a name to it, did it come naturally to you based on your UX background? I think so in the way that it was always problematic for me to think that you cannot do business honestly in tech. What I mean with that is that a lot of the classical sales-led companies that I was in, because I have a big sales-led background. I was never a salesperson, but I I worked a lot in corporate environments that did have sales-led growth motions. It always felt a bit dishonest. It was always about, let's push for high closings. Let's uh, incentivize sales in this way. Let's build a product that kind of services sales and so forth. And when the first subscription model started to come around, which was way after I started starting to work also in tech, things started to become a little bit more honest because it started to pay being honest. And what I mean with that is if you have multiple products to choose from and you've been burned five to six times already as a consumer, you're going to know how to discover the red flag. And then you want to see a demo first or a trial or a freemium now before you pull the trigger on anything. You start to wise up. This is how I look at it. When I was working at a big publishing house in Switzerland, we were right in the middle of this huge online advertising bubble that crashed. And I distinctly remember back then that banner ads became really, really popular. We started to bring banner ads in. And for a publishing house, this was great. You have banner ads and every Two out of 100 people were clicking on it. Like we had a 2% conversion rate. This was great for marketing. And this was showing you everything that was wrong with marketing and the way that we started to monetize people. This is why you still have to today newspapers just plastered with advertisement, autoplay videos and all this other garbage. So you cannot read them anymore because this is the way that they monetized it. This never felt right to me because I also built products that were then, you know, like plastered full with advertisements and so forth. And I felt very jaded at that point. So where we are now is a far cry from back then, but it required that the consumers started to wise up and also burn their fingers a bit. And so you've gone on to now accomplish all of these things. Had there been moments or people in your career journey that as you reflect back have helped you to get to this point? There were a couple of them. I have about four in my life that were quite important. One of them is definitely my father. He's been always an extremely honest person. It was never for him the question on how to trick people or the government, you know, like, hey, here's how I can save another dollar or whatever. As long as it's legal, he would do what needs to be done. And he still is a very, very honest and kind person. And it took me quite a long time to figure out like what it is that I really like about him. This focus on kindness and being honest with whatever you can, even if it takes a little bit more hard work. He's a much better person than I am, for sure. And he's still a role model for me. 
And the other were just two managers that I had in my life. One of them was Stephanie Schoss that I had about 10 years ago. And then Mike at SmallPDF, my CPO, about three to four years ago, he was very, very pivotal for to me. I think we're going to talk about this as well. And then the most recent one was someone that became a good friend now, which is Elena Verna, who has helped me really, I would say, fast track a lot of my growth solopreneur journey myself, because I did not know how to put all these tools and all the knowledge that I had so far into a personal branding exercise for myself. I'm extremely grateful for these four people, I think, in regards to my career. Oh, that's awesome. And the folks that you mentioned here, your dad, Stephanie, Mike, and then Elena, obviously your dad, let's put aside because family is in a different category. But these other folks, did you seek out mentorship or in the moment, did you know that you were getting mentorship or they were having a big impact on you? Or is that more so with the benefit of time that you reflect back and you put these people in those categories that you looked up to and that had a big impact on you? I really like this question because I feel like one of the problems that I had back then with Stephanie, for instance, is, is that I soaked up everything that she told me, but I did not show that I was appreciating it. I was pretending to be a know-it-all all the time. This is the most common thing that I see. Yeah. And I was thinking about this quite a lot, like why this was the case. And I think it always came from this inherent need to believe that I'm only good enough in the eyes of other people, or I'm only lovable if I also perform, or if I know something. And let's say in your, at some point in your career, you become an executive or a head of something. If you feel like that you need to know everything that this particular position touches, you know, like marketing, product, sales, finance, whatever, you're going to have a very hard time because it's impossible to know everything about these functions. But if you start to pretend, then nobody will help you because you're already pretending that you know, and you will certainly not learn because you can also not admit to yourself that you just don't know. It's very hard to get good at something if you cannot get the experience. This is something that I since then have reconciled with her. I had a talk with her about two years ago again, where I was just like, hey, do you remember all of this? I was so appreciative of all these lessons and I couldn't put them into reality because it took me so, so much longer to just get over myself. And just not to have to pretend that I know everything. This was interesting because I banked all the knowledge, but I could not accept it until almost a couple of years ago when I finally took it in and had my moment of truth in that sense. And the same was for Mike, but he pushed me pretty rough into this. But that was the moment where the floodgates opened and I just let it all in. You know? That's really cool. I think it's really hard to look for a mentor when you're at that messy middle of your career. I think when you're a junior, you're like, hey, I don't know anything. I'm brand new at this. I just want to soak it up. And then you get to some point where you feel pressure to know more. And then I think part of mastery is admitting how much you don't know. What's some advice for someone listening to this that's maybe in that messy middle? They're feeling pressure to know everything. Maybe they're surrounded by folks like Stephanie that they may not realize. What's the message to those folks out there? I think there's a good exercise that you can do that I have for myself now in the sense that I am becoming the role model for others while I also still have my own role models for other people, which has been really awkward to accept in some way. At first it honors you and then in second thought you start to realize, uh-oh, they take what I say for granted and so forth. But one thing that you need to really realize is that people that are in my position right now, they get way less appreciation than you might think because everybody thinks that, oh my God, she has everything together. Everything is great. I'm still dealing with the same self-doubt. 
I'm still having my growth mind telling me like, oh yeah, but I could have done this better, you know, like I should have done this better and so forth. And just showing appreciation to your manager or leader or mentor goes a long, long, long way. Do not think for a second that your evaluation and your opinion is not valuable to someone just because they're above you in the career ladder. It absolutely matters. It absolutely matters. And it does not matter in your case whether you get positive received back. Because I know from some people that I have in my life right now that they read these compliments, but they might not be able to reciprocate like, hey, thank you so much. This means so much to me. Not everybody can do this. Yeah. But especially the quiet people will absolutely thank you for this. And I know this because I'm an introvert myself, even though I come across very, very extrovert. And I make it a point now to also be grateful and tell people that, hey, thank you so much for letting me know. I didn't realize this. Just because you have your stuff together doesn't mean that you know everything about the feelings of people around you. This is great advice. And so you've got your mentors. You've gone on to do some great things, right? You went on your own a couple months ago. You're advising a bunch of different tech companies. You're a former head of product in PLG. You have an impressive career trajectory. Can you tell us about one time along the way where you got a little bit of tough feedback? I wouldn't call it a little bit of tough feedback. That was absolutely brutal. And I think that was this watershed moment. It was about three years ago, I would say. And this could be also due to recency bias that you feel like, okay, just because this happened just three years ago, this must have been the worst. That's how emotions feel usually. So what happened is that we got a new CPO at Small PDF. And his name is Mike. And Mike was my boss back then, my manager. And I respected him very, very quickly because I also saw how incredibly intelligent he is. Great growth leader. Really, really smart in how to frame and discover opportunities, you know, like in how to scale products. So he had my immediate respect on a lot of things. And then I started to do a little bit of my spiel where I started to dress up my achievements. I got a little bit complacent. I started to become a little bit arrogant. And I went into one of the first meetings where I just showed them all of my achievements. Sorry to interrupt you real quick before we keep going. I just want to contextualize this. So you're at small PDF. How big is the company? What's your role? How big is that team? Just before we keep going here. So back then it was about 30 people, I would say, maybe 35. And we were talking about getting a CPO in. I was back then the lead of the desktop application for small PDF. So I was in charge on one of the Greenfield teams that was trying to build the desktop application, which was set out to rival Adobe Acrobat. So no big deal, no pressure, right? So like, you know, how do you build this from zero? This was the challenge that they put me on. So I tried to present all of this, what we did so far to Mike. And I was hoping for the sweet recognition that you always get from people. And I think in the second meeting, he was just looking at me and he said like, this is total garbage. This is just not good what you did so far. He said it just like that or did he dress it up? I cried in that meeting. I'm not very good in like remembering adverbatims, but like it was something like this. And I took it very, very personal because this also came from someone that I professionally respected. And this was extremely difficult for me to accept first because I was always pointing at these charts. Yeah, but look at the month on month growth. Look at how this was growing. And I said like, yeah, but you need to zoom out. Two million is not a lot for us. We have bigger fish to fry. You're wasting your potential because you're not zooming out. How long, how many years is this going to take until it actually brings the kind of money that you can get with a growth initiative if you were sitting on the big teams? 
And that's when I kind of got it because initially I took the desktop application. I had a choice. I had a choice to make between getting the desktop application and the web platform when I got into the company. And I chose the desktop application because this is where I felt comfortable. It's completely zero. There's nothing to do there yet. There's nothing there yet or almost nothing. And I can build it up from the get-go. Whereas the platform itself, so the SaaS platform, the web interface was already existent. This would have been much more of a growth on top of existing product. And I broke down because I did not get the appreciation that I wanted from someone that I respected. But I also at the same time, I started to realize, damn, he's right. I wasted the time and I also knew why I was not doing it because I was scared. I was extremely scared of touching something that is growing so fast, the platform, right? So like the entire platform, like with back then we had about 20 to 30 million monthly active users, you know, like at the time when I started, that was difficult for me. So I left that meeting, cried about it a little bit more. And I kind of made my internal decision for myself to say that, what can I do now? I can either go back into this usual spiel that I was playing for decades, always, where you're just like, no, it's not my fault. It's this, it's that. Or I'm going to go back on a call with Mike and ask him, okay, just hypothetically, let's just say you would be correct, right? Like leaving me still an exit to kind of do the really weird spiel. What do I need to know to become better at this? Give me the books. I'll read them. And then I let you know. I still had to get over my pride, right? Like, and then I let you know whether this is the right thing. And this was really the unlock moment for me because he did not just tell me that I wasted my potential. He also said that I know you can do better. Mm, that's like a key part of this story, right? It's not just chopping you down. It's chopping you down and letting you know that you have an opportunity to be great. And this defined my leadership style going forward more than anything else that I had backwards. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? How does that play out in your leadership style? I have always a very bad feeling quite soon if I make people feel bad, right? Like if I hurt them or whatever. Like I was always very scared of leading people as well. And because I also know how it makes me feel, I don't want to reciprocate this kind of feeling to others. But when you give tough feedback about something that someone could have done different, you should always attach and you should do it also like quite frank. This is not good. It's not like, oh, this was a little bit unoptimal. No, this, what you just did, is not good, but I know that you can do it better for this and this and this reason because I see that you have potential to grow in this and this and this particular part. Because usually then they also do what Leah did back then and they push back and they say like, yeah, but I don't see it this way. It's not like this. And I said like, look, I don't care. If you want to do it better, you can come back. Here's the stuff that I put together for you. Give the proof that you care. And if you want to do this, then show me. But... If not, then you don't have a room in my team at some point. I just do not have room for people who do not want to grow and just stay in this kind of victim wheel in that sense. And that is tough love, but that's what I needed back then. So you can be frank, but caring at the same time. This episode is brought to you by Nevatic. We're seeing the next phase of product-led growth emerge right now. The first phase of PLG was all about using your product as a go-to-market tool basically creating free plans, free trials, or reverse free trials, getting new accounts to sign up, and then layering in retention and upgrade programs. It was a solid playbook. The only challenge is that the product value is hidden behind your signup form, which means that most of your visitors never get to see it. The next phase of PLG is all about leading with product value. 
creating interactive product demos, embedding them on your website, and letting people play with them, click around, and see the value before signing up. This engages way more people, which means more experience that value, more convert to your paid plans, and more become brand advocates. If you're sold on the idea, but not sure where to start, check out Novatic. Their no-code editor makes it easy to create interactive demos, and they're offering a free trial exclusively for delivering value listeners. Go to novatic.com slash value and sign up for a free trial and see for yourself. This episode is presented by AppQs. If you work in product-led growth, you know how important activating and engaging new accounts is. Turning new accounts into active users is critical to your success in a PLG environment and typically why activated accounts is a North Star metric for growth teams. It's why my team spent years focused on improving our new user onboarding experience during my time at Wistia and at PostScript. And that's why I'm so excited that AppQs is sponsoring the show. They're just as passionate about helping product-led companies fix their onboarding and their retention as I am. They're the leading product onboarding and adoption platform for web and mobile apps, and they've helped over 1,500 SaaS orgs create exceptional onboarding experiences that convert new users into power users and brand advocates. So if you're looking for help activating more new accounts, head to appqs.com value. They have a free new user onboarding audit, which is done by Romley John. He literally wrote the book on new user onboarding, and he's a close personal friend of mine. For help, head to appqs.com slash value. And is that the biggest positive outcome from this experience for you, or is there another? I think it unlocked everything that came after. I'm an extremely hardworking person, but as I was a car that was always going at 200 kilometers an hour, I worked myself into the ground as well because I always went into the wrong direction. I was really good at shipping things. I was really good at building products, but I never questioned the things that I did not really understand. I never stood in front of people and said that like, look, I don't understand this 100%. Can we take a step back? Because this is necessary to zoom out. It is necessary to say when a product leader comes to you and says like, oh, we need to build this, that you just zoom out and you're not only asking like, so why are we building this? But hey, zoom out. What are your current company problems that you have? What are you trying to achieve in the big scale? So how does this work into how the company works in general? What other opportunities do you have? And this is how I ended up as a growth advisor in the end, because this is my job. I always hear that we should do this or that. Where does this thought come from? How does it fit into the bigger picture? It's not possible if you just assume that either your skills or the ones from your counterpart are perfect. It just does not work that way. That's really cool. And is this the only low point on your journey? Is this the only major misstep that you've had? I would say in the recent five to 10 years, I had a lot of them, but like this was the one that I always kind of recount and I'm also okay with talking about it. I kind of clipped this up with Mike as well. He's very great about this and we had a great podcast episode about it as well. I think a really big one is, is when I ran a startup into the wall that I founded with my father in the early 2000s, like almost in the last millennia. What was the startup? The startup was called AdPix, and we were trying to license photographers that were producing digital pictures for the Swiss market, a very, very specific vertical kind of solution for a very small market. And this was right at the time when Corbus Getty Images and all these other companies were becoming quite big. The fascinating fact about this is, is that I had a pretty good understanding of all the customers and so forth, but I was arrogant to no end. I was 20 years old when I had my first job that paid $75 an hour. And that made me think, well, I figured everything out. 
$75 at 20. That's pretty good, right? Like you can make a good living out of this. So I started this company with my dad. The fascinating fact about this company is that, that it went on for four years, even though after already one year, it would have been clear that this is not working. It's not working clearly. And I didn't care about how the company financials were. I did not care about how all of the US research that I did fit into the business context. I did not care about running cost, anything. I just cared about whether what I think the product is, is going to go into the market. I mean, I was very, very young. I didn't know anything about product management either. But this is just a good example of you not taking responsibility because I could have learned. You might not know what KPIs to look out for, but it takes you like 10 minutes to just Google whether revenue and cost need to be in a specific kind of balance. Let's put it that way. So yeah, that was a big moment where I just say like, this was just wasted time. At least three years of these four, for sure. And so what happens after that? So you have this opportunity with your dad. At some point, it's not going well. You kind of realize it, but you plow ahead. Then what? It took me way too long. I would say over 10 years or 15 years to even realize and learn from it. Because even when the company went under, I just blamed the market. I mean, yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, it's always the market's fault, of course, right? Like if it doesn't warrant your product. But I think this was an important moment where I'm just like, I should have realized earlier. But like I was full in that spiel. I joined Microsoft after this as well. Like I went to the big publishing house that I mentioned from before. And it was a good time, right? But I portrayed myself back then as a, you know, like I already had a startup, but it didn't happen. Like it could have happened, but it didn't happen because of the market, you know, like because this and that. And I was very good in kind of dressing up all these achievements. But I was largely unsuccessful in these companies, at least for myself, in regards to the mental capabilities or the intellectual capabilities that I could have had with the impact that I did have. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. Jason Fried told me that, cannot beat yourself up over all of this. I'm trying to be a little bit more kind, but it feels like I wasted a little bit of time there. But like the last three years have been more eventful than the last 20 years before that probably together. You know, what's interesting as you're sharing these stories, you're talking about that you were, I'm going to use my words, not yours, but you were overconfident sometimes in your abilities. And when things didn't go well, you didn't want to feel like it was you and the situation. In some ways, that's a superpower because the flip side of that, I work with folks as a coach all the time who have the title head of growth, director of growth, whatever. And when the company isn't growing, they feel like garbage and they take it super personally. And they think, Even if the situation is incorrect, they blame themselves and they beat themselves into a pulp over it. And you don't have that. And I'm wondering why, or if you have an opinion on why that might be. Because I think it's a superpower and it's something that a lot of folks will be way more successful having this mindset. I think there is a fragile balance between the imposter syndrome that you're talking about, where people are just like always thinking that they're not good enough versus having a superiority complex where they just don't take any accountability for anything. And I think we're always on a spectrum, right? So like we're always bouncing between and so forth. So I think with age, I've gotten pretty good in lowering the maximum where this can go on the wrong side, but also like raising the minimum where it can go as well, right? Like you'll never arrive at the perfect equilibrium, but I'm not going to go out of complete control anymore. So in my 20s, I definitely believed that I knew everything then. And it's a little bit like what you said, right? So like when you're a junior, it's very easy that you think like, hey, you know, like I can ask questions. And as soon as you have the first successes, then you become suddenly the expert. But with increasing job titles, I think in the 30s, 
that's when I started to believe that I don't know anything. But I still wanted to kind of keep up the appearance, which was interesting because when you're starting to become older, you also get into rooms with more talented people that are clearly knowing their stuff better, or at least some part. And then what you have is a social media effect is starting to set in where you just take the best things about others and then you construct this persona that you are not and you try to measure them against yourself. And uh, yeah, things just fall apart. So I cannot tell you why that is the case. It's good to be somewhere in the middle, but I also do think that it's very easy to also fall into this kind of habit right now because right now I'm 42 years old. I need to be aware that I could still become like, oh yeah, well, you know, back then, I didn't know many of these things and now I got it all under control. It's very easy still to do that. I don't let it happen, but it is a conscious effort. Yeah, because we love all the likes, the followers and everything that comes with it and the fame and whatever. It's not as glamorous as it seems from the outside, I think. And so you talked about having a spectrum. And at different moments in your career, you fall in different places on that spectrum. What's one thing someone could do that's listening to this, that's thinking to themselves, gosh, I'm on the lower end of that spectrum. I've got a little too much self-doubt and imposter syndrome, and I could use a higher baseline or higher floor here. What's one thing that you could share with them that might help? We have the opportunity nowadays to sit in front of a PC, to get in contact with people who, if you take a risk, will invest in you, will give you their time, even if it's just for half an hour, an hour, it doesn't really matter, that you can just listen to them. Even if you believe that you're a total failure, that you're beyond saving and everything, because this was my emotional state. I think you need to be aware of two factors when it comes to these emotions, because this is an emotion. Imposter syndrome is an emotion that is getting triggered when certain things happen. This is not a feeling that you have all the time, but whenever you do have it, it feels like it's going to last forever. And it has never been this bad as it is right now. And that's the hallmark of an emotion. And it needs to be this way because emotions make us act fast, which was important back then to survival, right? So like a tiger is jumping at you. You don't have time to critically evaluate whether you should now jump out of the way or not. That's just what it is. And I think Mentoring Club and some other platforms that came up in the recent years are great ways to just talk to people. Hey, what if I just talk to someone that is on the same, they have the same kind of title, the same seniority. Let's just talk to them. Let's just see how they are dealing with this. You can do it anonymous if you're completely scared or whatever, because you're just so afraid of someone seeing you on LinkedIn and everything. But talk to people who are on your level or a little bit ahead in the career. And at some point you will meet those that are more vulnerable. There's almost no way to kind of miss them because those are the ones that are successful in the end. And they will tell you the honesty as well. Hey, look, I don't know everything. I just don't. And I cannot give you all the answers, but you need to become vulnerable first and ask for advice. And that puts you also into a perspective where you're like, hey, I don't need to know everything to become a role model myself eventually, because you are already the role model for someone in your life, for sure. It's such great advice. And it's so freeing, right? It's like, well, if all the people I look up to also aren't actually expert, they don't actually know everything. They just try to figure it out and make the best decisions that they can with the information they, ha they have available. And if that's what everybody's doing, why can't? We all do that. Because we don't believe it. We're listening to podcasts like these, and then we don't believe it. But I can't do it because yada, yada, yada. Or, well, they had this other advantage. Yeah, there's some other reasons. Or, yeah, but for me, it's different. I'm really not savable. I'm stupid. I'm this, I'm that. It's not necessary. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that 
even today you have plenty of self-doubts. What's one thing that you doubt yourself on today in the last two years or so? So about two months ago or like one month ago, I had my last day at work at Jua, which was marking the first day where I'm just like, I don't have a full-time job anymore and also not working in a startup that I founded, right? So like really a solopreneur journey, which is something that I haven't done in that particular form before. It's funny because all these other PLG advisors that are listening to this episode that I just like hounded with advice, like Ben Williams, Elena and so forth, they had to deal with me going into complete panic mode in regards to what if this does not work? What if I fail? What if I become sick for like six months? And I was cash positive at day three. But you know, like in my head, it was always like, yeah, but what if I misjudge something, right? So like course, I have like yeah. six different income streams. What if all of them break away? What if suddenly LinkedIn closes or like everybody thinks that I suck at my stuff and so forth. There's a rational side to this. I have so many things and numbers that show me that everything is going to be all right. It's going to be fine. I'm constantly growing. I've met a lot of wonderful people on the way as well that are genuinely caring about me. But this emotional panic that something will go wrong is still there. And in some way, it pushes me. It never lets me let my guard down in some way, but it can be stressful. It's very stressful to be me because on the other side, I'm also very competitive because I don't want to be the number two advisor in the world. I want to be the number one because why not, right? So you have an imposter syndrome, but then this ultra competitive side where you're just like, no, I need to be the best one. And so they talked you down from the ledge. They gave you some good advice and said, keep going, you got this. Yeah, yeah, or like they just say like, you're killing it. Are you stupid? I'm just always like, yeah, but what if it's temporary? What if it's not real? Sometimes you're just like, yeah, maybe I wake up from the dream. This is complaining on a very, very detached level. 99% of the people on the world do not have an opportunity like this. They do not get the freedom that we have where we can just like get up in the morning and just be with ourselves and decide largely how we structure our day. It's not easy. I'm not saying that. I also know how hard it is to stand up for yourself, but we are incredibly, incredibly, incredibly privileged. So from the outside, it sounds like I'm complaining on a very high level and I probably am. So no, I don't think you're complaining. What I'm what I'm hearing you say is that everybody needs a little bit of a hype crew and a pump up once in a while and that nobody's immune to that. Even people who other folks might view as a success story don't always feel that way on the inside or have moments where they don't always feel that way. And I think that's what makes us human and relatable and connectable. I definitely have that. Yeah, for sure. If we could go back in time, what is one skill that you wished you had focused on earlier in your career and why? I think knowing how I learn versus what other people tell you how you learn. So a good example is when I was 27, I got my first diagnosis that I have ADHD. So this was about 16 years ago. I was always beating myself up. So I'm an ultra, an ultra self-critical person about everything that I did and do and so forth. And I constantly lost my keys. I constantly lost the parking tickets. Like those were always a, an item of contention in my life. And I always try to find solutions for any of the stuff that I cannot do in my life by using frameworks from other people who are normal, right? It really helped me to understand that, look, you're not normal there in one hand, <laughs> and that's okay. But once you know what works for you, just stick to it. It doesn't matter whether it's stupid or not. So for instance, I have a bookshelf that is full of books that I got recommended from people. 90% of those I have not read. 
for a very specific reason, I retain information much better on audiobooks. This sounds very stupid now, but like 10 years ago, it was weird to have audiobooks. People did not really listen to books. Everybody told you like, oh, so what are your three favorite books that you're reading every month? And I'm like, I cannot read that fast, but I can listen to it very well. And I think learning how to learn, you know better for yourself how you learn and retain things. So do it that way. And that's also how I started to lead product organization. Now, I don't like the Jeff Bezos style where you just get 10 page documents and no slides. I hate that stuff. Just no, summarize it. Let me just ask quickly, when you were in-house, did you have Slack on your phone? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And did you have notifications turned on? Like, did you want to know? Oh, of course. Okay. So it's, so you got your notifications on. It's late night. You get a Slack from your CEO, no context. Hey, Leah, do you have a sec to chat? Question mark. What goes through your mind when you get that Slack and what do you do? Putting on my arresting bitch face, definitely not put on any makeup and go on camera so I look absolutely miserable. So the person that is logging on also sees in what kind of state I am. And then I open with, this better be worth it, my friend. So you take the call. So you do it. I would take the call because I know that Andreas, if he would ask me for something at this time of the day, that it is important. So the other question I want to get your take on is... You shared the story with Mike earlier in our conversation about a presentation that went poorly. I'm curious to know if you were to do this again, maybe with modern day Leia, you present something, maybe a strategy, maybe someone out there is presenting their 2024 strategy because we're just at the end of this year. What goes through your head if you present that and it goes poorly? And then what do you do afterwards? I have an example that is quite uh, actual. And I was presenting in front of a six to 700 people, I think, on a conference. And I was not happy about how I presented it because I was looking at the recording and I was just like, this is not a good presentation. In the moment, did you feel that or it's just afterwards you're reflecting? No, afterwards. Actually, when I looked at the recording, because normally it is the other way around. Also, when I record podcasts myself, I always think that, oh my God, this could have been better. Then you go into post-production, you look at it and you're like, oh my God, this was actually quite good. This was actually really cool. And... In this case, it was actually the other way around. I had a really good feeling when I came off stage. I looked at the recording and I was like, hmm, this was not that good. But it was not like self-pity or whatever. It was just like, this was not a good presentation. Yeah, you can try to learn from it, but don't over-engineer it as well. This is also something where I'm just not dwelling anymore. Just be kind, move on, because the conference that followed afterwards, I absolutely nailed it. And that was also okay. And I feel like one thing that we do not do because we feel like it is frowned upon culturally is to be grateful for ourselves and to say like, hey, this is a really good job that you did there without becoming arrogant. Mm. Because sometimes it's okay to also say like, hey, you know what? This is really good. I'm actually proud of this. And now it's on my YouTube channel. Like the productized presentation about PLG is something that I'm very proud of. That's what it is. And it would not have existed if I wasn't that critical about the other one. How do you practice gratitude today? Or do you practice gratitude today? I really try to do it in the way that I just said. Whenever I do something for myself, I try to say thank you. Really to myself, hey, thanks that you stood up for yourself. I've never been this way. I would, never, I would have never gone to a mirror and just say like, hey, thanks for standing up for yourself. Because it is weird to me that out of 100 meetings that we have in company contexts, you know, like as a head of product, I'm missing maybe one out of 100. But the ones that I have just for myself where nobody's there for to check in, I miss about 50% of them. And that's a problem. I want to become the most important stakeholder in my own life and not always all the other people. 
And I think that's the first step that you have to do. Yeah, that's great feedback. I want to ask you one other question. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned the importance of honesty in your life. You mentioned it a couple of ways. One, you talked about PLG versus sales-led being more of an honest way to market and sell a product. And you talked about it in how you described your dad. What role does honesty play for you at this stage of your life and of your career? Without going too much into detail, I had a moment a couple of years ago where I was in a really dark place. And it was very difficult for me to accept that I had this kind of lingering feeling that I wasted a lot of my time past all these mistakes that I did, you know, like I started to dwell on my past mistakes again and so forth. There was just this moment where I was just like, look, you have a choice now. You are aware of it now and you're either going to move on or you're going to keep doing what destroys you, essentially. I kind of had to have this moment with myself and also like figuring out why I cannot go on like this. This is what I really needed to have. It was really just a discussion with myself. I was incredibly depressed back then as well. And just had to figure out how do you go on? And it is really about that. I'm not going to go to that place anymore. And the only way that I'm not going to go back to that place is by being honest with myself about my skills and that they're not connected to whether other people can love me or not. Mm. Like me as the person that I am. And I feel like that's where a lot of good things start to happen when you just kind of detach this because I don't need to push 1 million ARR in order to be valuable. I think we fool ourselves in tech to sometimes think this way. I need to have a title. I need to do this. I need to do that. And you have Instagram followers. Like you're almost living your life for other people. And I'm not going to go back to that. And that's to me as a form of honesty. It's hard to separate out your self-worth from your professional accomplishments, especially in the growth and SaaS world, right? It's like if your title is growth, and the company grows, you can't help but feel good about it. And when the opposite happens, you kind of can't help but feel bad about it. And so finding ways to separate the two so that you're happy regardless of outcome to me is critical for long-term success here. Did you ever think like, hey, fuck all this SaaS stuff. I'm just going to like leave this behind and become like a ski instructor or like a barista or anything like that? Did you debate that? I told my parents at some point that I become a taxi driver and they were pretty shocked and I still don't know whether that's still a career path that it's in front of me. But yeah, the way that you said it, like, fuck that SaaS stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I think so in the future, yes. And I think I will also attain the financial freedom to do so. I really don't know what the future holds for me. But I'm very grateful to have seen this path that I'm on right now because it also helps me to know that happiness is not in this. It's fun. It's very rewarding. It's financially very lucrative, but it's not where happiness is coming from. It needs to come from somewhere else. Until then, I stay competitive. I'm going to be better than my other friend that I'm not going to name here right now. And she knows I'm coming. <laughs> and until then, I will have figured it out what it means to be happy in life. But I think this is just one of those things that you can choose to do in your life. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad to be here. Hell yeah. And what's one thing that you're digging that's outside of the SaaS and growth world that brings you joy in your personal life? I have a lot of simulator gear here, like for flight simulators, joysticks and stuff, helicopter gear, trying to simulate on how to fly. I'm going to make my pilot's license next year. And this is something that I really look forward to, which is another privileged thing, but I think you can do it also from the comfort of your home. I enjoy the thought of being above all the bullshit that happens on the ground. 
and enjoying the view while doing it completely alone. Physically and theoretically being above the bullshit. That's great. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Thank you for coming on, sharing some of your stories, your missteps, being vulnerable with us here. For folks who are listening that aren't already following you, where should we send them? How can they learn more? Well, they can go to my website, which is my first name and last name.com. And uh, yeah, I don't have to advertise all the things that I do because if you like the stuff, you will see it on the first page. And if not, then yeah, it shouldn't have been anyways. So uh, yeah, very grateful for just go to my website. Yeah, that's a good place to start or LinkedIn. Or LinkedIn. Oh yeah, LinkedIn. I have almost no followers, so uh, I need a couple more. I'll give you a plug. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate the time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, the biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Kaplan. Otherwise, hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.